0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast years in the making. Um, I first met Amanda Shires in 2013 in New York City uh, when she was in town with her hubby. And uh, we went and had coffee. And I was immediately struck by uh, how incredibly smart uh, she was. Uh, Not only didn't she miss a beat, she was, like, ahead of it. And... um, a great sense of humor. And I could also tell this was like a, a, a great listener and a, a deeply engaged human being. And um, I've had the privilege of spending some time uh, with her over the years, uh, always in brief and intense bursts after shows. And um, uh, she's just a great artist and a uh, songwriter, an amazing uh, violin player. Uh, she's in the 400 unit. She makes albums on her own and she is founding member of the high women the incredible super group that took nashville by storm and she has just released uh, really an incredible single one of the best songs of her career the problem came out this week uh when you're listening to this i guess it'll have come out um a week or so ago it's a really important and great song and uh amanda shires thanks for being here
1: thank you and before anybody gets gets worried that i might be good at everything. I'm not, I suck at Twitter. <laughs> well, you've, you've
0: intermittently been good at, you've intermittently been good at Twitter. Um, and then somehow, yeah, you, 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 you decide to really engage and, and, and not engage. No, it is funny though, Amanda. I mean, everybody who talks about you always talks about how you're the smartest person in any room you walk into. And I'm sure that that there's a lot of pressure attendant to sort of knowing that's your rep before you show up.
1: Well, yes because um i i feel like i'm good at a lot of things and there's a lot of folks that are good at a lot of things and i like i've never felt super comfortable comfortable outside of um you know writing songs or poems or all the internal work painting so talking to people is uh, something that i i try to stay away from so <laughs> you you got me on here cuz you're my friend <laughs>
0: Yes. Well, and I really think it's important for you to be out there because the music you're making is so good. And also because the song is so important that you just released. And 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 I know that's part of why this is a good moment for you to be talking about stuff. So I, I have a whole bunch of things I want to ask you, but but maybe we should just start out. Do you want to talk about why it was important to you to release this single now and what your ambitions for it are and, and, and what it's dealing with?
1: Um, I guess... I got the spark of the idea for the song in 2016, and I wrote a version of the song um, that's called Our Problem. And, um, you know, I started recording it and trying to figure out exactly how it fit because you, when I wrote the song, it didn't fit on my album, My Piece of Land, and then I tried it on other things and it just wasn't fitting anywhere in um, like as, a, as part of a collection. And, um, you know, since 2018, I feel like uh, women's reproductive issues have just regressed or, you know, rights even. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, on the line. There's a lot at stake and I don't know. I just got, away from being scared to put it out and you know what folks might say or do or thinking about like what could be the like I don't want anybody in my family to get hurt because of you know I believe something but I guess but I guess at the end of the day I was like like f that can you say fuck on this sorry just bleep that (laughs)
0: Oh, please do. Please please say fuck on this. Yes, you may.
1: (laughs) Okay. But I was like, well, fuck that. And then it just started turning into some real anger, you know, and um, being that we're in this pandemic, I've been uh, seeing my husband a lot more than normal and been talking to him a lot more about it. Uh, You know, women's rights in general and how we've gotten to this place. And then we started talking about writing from, you know, more of the first-hand uh, experience in this case, and we came out with The Problem, Then we recorded it here in my barn because I've been teaching myself how to record, and um, my friend Gina helped me, and you have the song The Problem, and it's out there, and all the money's going to Yellowhammer Fund out of Alabama who are doing really good things for Alabama and then the Southeast in general, as far as um, doing everything they can to to keep um, options open and safe for women, because that, that's a terrible thing.
0: Yes. Yes. Agreed. It seems to me that um, you found a way though, that the final version of the song or the one that came out uh, last week, of course the urgency is in there and um, maybe the anger behind you writing it, but then the song itself is not strident. Do you know what I mean? You found a way to invite us in. And I think even to invite in people whose opinions going into it might be different than yours. And I, I think that's really important that 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 the way melodically and also the way you tell the story, the way you both sing it, it it's... it's um, it's got a quality to it that is more questioning than it is making grand statements. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that was the the intention. I think for me was to um, to show that it's a lot more gray than than folks seem to think. You know, it's uh, a lot more. You know, I live in the South. It's not. It's not a place where where people are either yes or no they're either pro-life or pro-choice and and i even have a problem with that word pro-life because i'm pro-life but i'm pro-choice they should change their name to anti-choice or like for force right
0: (laughs) right well they're good at brand i mean they're good at branding they're just good at branding you know Uh so uh so 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 the song is great and people you should go if you don't know Amanda's work it is a great place to start actually because um she's uh she's a great singer, songwriter and and this is an Im- important stuff though the whole catalog is worth getting to. All right, here's p- past that song Amanda. I my daughter Anna, who you know a little bit, um she was like, "Dad, I'm going to tell you where you have to start this interview." And I, I have to say she was correct. Awesome. So she's like, "You got to ask her about Yeah, she was like, "You got to ask about this uh this lyric and and So I am, Um, there's this lyric Jason wrote about you and it says, uh, mama wants to change that Nashville sound but they're never gonna let her. So then right after that, you put together a group of women and went to number one and then they started nominating you for awards and now you're playing alongside Luke Combs so I have to ask, like, is it mission accomplished for you? Do you think, like, how do you feel about that? It feels like right after that, I mean, I know you were, already, you know, right after that, you, you just set about doing it, and then you kind of did it.
1: Oh Well, you know, that line's kind of funny. Um, they, they, they'll never let me at the speed that I would like to see things change, but, you know, everything <laughs> takes baby steps. And um, sometimes Jason um, will sing that song and uh, change it to who knows, maybe the letter. <laughs> but um, well. in live concert settings, when we used to do that, but um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you could just you. I my I want I want it to be different, and I want it to be better. And I know a lot of folks do, and I know that um, it's hard for a lot of old white dudes to get out of their set ways and, you know, try other things out. They're over there deciding what song's going to be number one while they play golf.
0: (laughs) Right. No, yes. No, sure. And look, as an old white, you know, I'm a 54-year-old white dude, so I understand how we can be set in our our ways. But you know the ones um, I'm talking about. Of course I do. And, and also, I know how you feel about golf. I can't believe you got the golf insult in within... I mean, that is amazing. You got the golf insult in within like seven minutes of the podcast. Um, I wasn't even going to ask you about golf.
1: I like golf for other people.
0: <laughs> yes. But I guess the question, though, Amanda, is like, what's underneath that line is like, um, and the idea and the, the sort of fight, uh, fight's too strong or word, but the battle or whatever is... Is, you know, can I make music that's personal, that satisfies me, that has this instrumentation that's got these traditional elements, but can I push it forward? And if I do that, am I um, am I sentencing myself to a life on the sidelines of this music instead of at the center of it? If I write about what I want to, if I make music, you know, and and. And, and, and it seems to me that, that you, that in the last couple of years, I mean, I thought it was amazing. You know, I think Luke Combs is really good. Like I tweeted about it before you were on this track with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, cause I think that guy means it, what he's doing. And, and mm-hmm. I think he's in the next generation of people. But when I see you with the high women and then with Luke Combs, it does feel like there's, um, an approach toward the main, that the mainstream is almost welcoming you a little. And I'm wondering, do you feel more welcomed or does it still feel difficult with each step?
1: Um, I feel more welcomed with this generation of, of, you know, Marin Morris and Luke Combs and them. They're, you know, they're more woke. (laughs) And, um, right. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's it's different than like your Travis Tritts and your Ricky Skags and all that, that that'd rather not give credit to anybody but themselves. But um I oops, I said that. That's okay. It's true. Yeah.
0: Uh <laughs> I I I mean, um
1: I'm just gonna shit talk all in Nashville while I'm on here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> no, you 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 can. By the way, you could say what I mean. I'm I'm a, as you know, I'm a huge country music fan, but and, and I do understand. I you know, I. Um,
1: but there were good ones. I there understand. Were, I compare every band that I play with and every musical like interaction, like that I have with my first experience, and that was when I was playing with the Texas Playboys. You know, they brought drums and country music and all that, and they, you know, Cindy Walker wrote songs for them. They had. um the McKinney sisters singing with them, and it was like, like I really didn't feel the shutout until I moved here in two thousand and four, um, and it took a while for me to identify that, and then to say, well, who cares? That's not the music you want to do anyway. But then I had Mercy, and then my daughter, she's five, and she was showing signs yes. like maybe she'll be musical, and I was like, well, what's the worst that could happen? Music is an unstable life, yeah, but. Um, you know, rock rock and roll is cool. And then I was like, "What's the worst that could happen?" Oh, cool. She'd go into country music. That would be it, wouldn't it? She'd have to be all alone. Mm. Like, if there was another like woman, or if she needed some sense of camaraderie or something, it wouldn't really exist, and it'd be lonely out there, and probably not the most m- mentally enjoyable. But um, so then I was like, "I'm going to start this band, the High Women." And so then I did that. And, um, yeah, I I think that there's been a lot of things that there are a lot of things that point you into the things that you find yourself doing in life.
0: Well, when you had the number one, but you did, you guys went to number one, um, uh, the, the high women.
1: We did. And then we did it again. Like, um, like later after it was, um, out for a while, we somehow got back on there during the pandemic, but, I have a hard time trying to figure out.
0: Yeah, did you did you think Amanda that like um, did it feel like a kind of an um, uh, acceptance? Because I, I I was writing songs with someone from uh from Nashville a while back, and and they said something about America and this this person was not a dick at all. Actually, wasn't being dickish. He was a great great guy in, in, in lots of ways, but a real Nashville songwriter. And he said something about you know. Sort of like, well, those Americana people, that's a different whole thing. And it's not really country music. And it's not really like, you know, they can write all sorts of lines that we can't get away with. And, and I couldn't put that, you know, I couldn't put that on a record or submit that to an artist. And they were kind of made it like like these songs that are about the real things that you're going through, the things you write about. Almost like from a craft standpoint, that's easier, which I, I I found shocking, and that was one of the first times that I understood when I've heard you interviewed and talking about the sort of being shut out thing that like they look down. It's almost like um, the industry looks down on the kind of music y'all make because it doesn't have to to um, conform to some sort of a rigorous preset standard. Is that true?
1: Well, the thing that happened, I think, is that um, people started getting lazy because country, if you listen to Top 40 Country, most of it isn't country anyway. And Americana is a whole bunch of different yeah. things that is just basically, if you play some kind of an instrument, then you're Americana, but, um, or not. You don't even, you can just sing. Anybody can be an Americana. But um, But, the right. the country music formula you know they kind of got lazy when because there was a time when we had songs like d-i-v-o-r-c-e and the pill and all kinds of stuff right um but then it got to where there was a, a bunch of people making money off of a certain formula and they just want to keep you know printing that one let's keep printing that one and only finding subtle variations or you know where everything kind of you know, it's easy for people to listen to. And the, um, lately though, I think if it's, if it's, well, lately, I would say it was Trump probably with all the pussy grabbing and all that, that got people really mad and um especially women and just all that horrible, yes. horrible awfulness that, um, somehow what is it not confluence uh, when everything kind of swirls together in the collective like that and synchron
0: like a synchronicity or, it, or like yeah. in the in the zeitgeist or
1: yeah something like that and, I mean confluence works well and I just couldn't it could be could be that it'll be one of those words that anybody likes to put there and there's it enters the thesaurian thesaurus word there um for that word in anyway yes. so so with that with politics and then music and it all working together like it kind of does. I think we've been making, um, ground a little bit more quickly than we would have been otherwise, if at all.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I saw uh, Darius who's my friend and who I love interviewed yesterday. And he said like, for a long time, I felt like I couldn't talk about this stuff and I shouldn't. And now I have to, and I thought it was beautiful. And I was so like just just so pleased that 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 he he was just out there.
1: Yeah, because if you don't have a very if there's not a path for you, you know, and and you have this tiny little trail, if you yes. can't have a path um, that you're on, this is like where you can be. This is your lane, and if you stray, then we're taking that away from you. Um, until there's awareness, you know, on. Black lives and, you know, women's reproductive issues and stuff and people on everybody's side speaking up at the same time. And I don't know. So somehow all the awareness makes it where people get to have a voice and they should have had for a lot longer than just this past few months.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. I've been listening to this podcast. I forget the name of it. It's cocaine and something that the David Allen Coe's kid does. And it's... um there's this whole story about the Judds and and in it, you get all this stuff about, I'll say the name of it by the end of the podcast correctly so people can find it, but Mm -hmm. you get all this amazing stuff basically about the way the business has been for a really long time. And it was uh, um, amazing to learn. (laughs) Let's talk about you and the path that got you here amanda um because you mentioned the the bob wills thing and if people don't know who that is watch the ken burns uh country music documentary it's all in, in there but one of the most important figures in modern country music and you were a kid like can you talk about how did music enter your life like what was your who what were you like as, as a kid like at at, at 12 13 because you were like 14 15 when you were in that band so like what were you like as a kid what was your childhood like i can't imagine it was that easy being as sort of smart and interested in things as, as, as you are, was, was fitting in hard or, or was it easy for you? Were you able to sort of like um, cover in a way and fit in?
1: I um, uh, My folks divorced when I was young and then they each got married a few times more each and that's mm. all fine and great, I don't know any different. But what I did learn in um, changing schools like probably six or eight times by the time I got to high school, or maybe it was yeah, junior high is when I finally got to stay in one place. Got to. I don't know if I got to, but I did. Right. But I um, did, yeah. But so early on I had to learn how to how to be adaptable. Because like, if you're moving schools and then one school's on multiplication and the other one's not, then I'm <laughs> kinda screwed. So I had to learn how to yeah. <laughs> I had to learn yeah. how to um I guess grin and bear it and then also at the same time how to not how to go into situations and not expect them to go your way at a young age. But um so I think I found music young like when I was 10 in elementary school or junior high, 10, whatever grade that is. <laughs>
0: fifth,
1: fifth or sixth grade, fifth or sixth, fifth or sixth. Yeah. And I was not a prodigy. I found this violin at a pawn shop because my dad was buying a new knife, a hunting knife that kind of yeah. has like a compass, like Rambo. And yes. I talked him out of $60 to get this little violin. And he was like, you know, we were not a family of means by any means. And um, right. he said, as long as you swear to me that you'll, learn to play it. And I was like, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. Um, Cause $60 is a lot of money. <laughs> and anyway, so I got it back to his house and um, then I broke all the strings off and I couldn't play it. And then after the summer was over, I was at my mom's and she enrolled me into the school orchestra. And then um, that teacher, uh, Catherine Borrego referred me to um, a private teacher that worked with, um, Scholarships and stuff like that, you could get grants and stuff to kind of right. get this extra additional. And um, he happened to be studying at the same time with the, one of the members of the Texas Playboys. And um, I started getting bored in my violin studying and switched to fiddle. Didn't switch, but he played me some Bob Wills and I learned a song. And it was like I found my expression because I didn't really have a, a way to verbalize my feelings or the vocabulary to do so at 10 but I found expression in music and that's just kind of been my number one and um you can I don't know something about the music you can it it has more colors to paint with sometimes and um anyway so that's how I fell into music
0: but did you uh were you so you were fiddling then you started fiddling and then that that it allowed you to have the more improvisational thing where you could put your feelings I- into what you, what you were playing. Were you just playing hours a day, Amanda? Cause you got so good so quickly and you say you weren't uh, sort of any kind of prodigy. So wh- wh- how, how much time were you spending with the instrument?
1: I, my mom made me parallel any fiddling with, um, staying the course in school with the right. violin <laughs> and the school yes. orchestras and stuff. Yeah. And, um, On the weekend, she would drive me um, to Turkey, Texas, which is where Bob Wills is from. It's a real place. Its population is more turkeys than people. But um, I would go and hang out with this guy who's 80. And um, all the Playboys at this time were in their 70s or 80s that I worked with. So it was kind of like having seven granddads. But um, I would go and learn everything he had to teach me by ear because he couldn't read music. And um, which was fine. He, you don't have to, but he learned from the first recorded Texas fiddle player called Eck Robertson. And, um, wow. I don't know. I just learned every, like all this old stuff, you know, what a, tr- what a tradition to be a part of the other stuff. Yeah.
0: What a tradition to be like right from the ground in Texas. I mean, what a tradition to be in unbelievable, right? I mean, so cool.
1: He used to keep this and- flask of whiskey inside of his shirt in his vest. And um, <laughs> I had my first taste of whiskey when I was 13. It was awesome
0: oh that's great
1: spit it out it was awesome all over the place
0: oh that's hilarious (laughs) those guys must have been laughing their asses off man that's so funny i mean today that would be a terrible that would be a terrible thing for someone to do today but i could see why it was fun and funny for for you and um amanda yeah
1: for me well you know but um my folks my mom is non-practicing catholic and so am i so um whiskey doesn't ever hurt if you're trying to teach somebody that you know it's kind of like in the old days like when my dad was like try the cigarette and you hate it so you never smoke one
0: sure yes um you know I understand I it. don't know um,
1: it could be bad parenting I don't know
0: <laughs> yeah don't don't give mercy any cigarettes please um uh don't to, worry
1: I'm not giving her anything
0: <laughs> not to not to smoke no I love the way I mean I don't want to talk about that because <laughs> yeah, but I love the way you guys are with with her and she's what a personality she has unbelievable um what uh Were you writing songs yet then? Well, when they asked you to join the band and go on the road with them, you then learned all the old Bob Wills and the Playboys songs. So you then were learning this songbook of sort of like the original, a certain kind of original country music, huh? That's what you were playing, right?
1: I not only had to learn the first melody line, but I had to learn the two, the second and third parts too. So they played in harmony and, um, so when I first started playing, this is another example of how um, of being adaptable is um, Tommy asked me to, Tommy Ossip, who was leading them at the time um, with Leon Rausch and all them, was uh, said, hey, I need a third part, you know, one of the guys can't make it, can you play, th- you know, that that low melody? And for a lot of folks that he might have asked, they would have been like, well, that part's really slow and kind of, you know, kind of so when you play that lower harmony, a lot of the notes stay the same. It doesn't change much. And I was like, sure, I'd love to. Right. And um, and he, his rule, his only rule was to show up on time and make sure all your gear worked and, um, you know, have long, clean clothes. And right. so I always showed up on time and my gear worked and I got to keep on learning from them.
0: And how long did you do that for? And then when you would show up at school, did people know you were like um, a touring musician on the side or did your learning at school change at that point? Were you homeschooled? Like what happened?
1: Luckily we didn't have the internet um, because I I was doing country music. Like my closest friends knew, but I was also keeping up with um, regular, like I'm a big fan of hip hop and R and B and um, you know, um, Latin music and um, being from Texas, it, in Lubbock, Texas, the population is over half um, Hispanic. And um, so I was keeping up with a lot of different musics. And then it wasn't super cool to do country. So occasionally people might see me out at the ranching and heritage days that the town offered. Or, right. you know, I'd play at these cowboy gatherings with the Playboys. They weren't touring because at this time they were like, you know, advanced age, but they played, you know, New Year's, Christmas, um, cowboy gatherings and enough, enough to, to go out on weekends and, you know, when spring breaks and stuff like that, long weekends even. But, um, no, I think my best friend, Rosalinda, she knew about all of it. She would come to him some, but I mostly tried to, um, uh, not get beat up in, um, just you know learn all the music I could
0: did uh (laughs) did your natural shyness sort of go away when you got on stage like when you got on stage did it immediately make sense to you or (laughs) were you nervous oh you were nervous on stage
1: oh nervous yeah well nervous but um not about the violin violin violining part um it was when they started having me sing that I got super nervous but the first time I sing on stage, Leon Roush from the Texas Playboys is holding my hand. I have a picture of that somewhere. But, um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I get that's I get nervous about singing, but I don't get nervous about playing the violin.
0: Man, Leon holding your hand when you sing. If that's not a country song, I don't know what is. How have you not written that song? <laughs> write that song, for fuck's sake. That's so good. That's, a, <laughs> that's such a great image, right? Uh, maybe I
1: will. Y- I mean, yeah. that is su- yeah, that's such absolutely. a great
0: image to write about, man. Yeah. Um, but so mm-hmm. you started you started singing then and did you kind of know you could sing? Were you playing guitar by no, then too I still don't And singing think songs I can. for yourself? That, that's that's funny. No. <laughs> You're number one selling recording mm-hmm. artist. Um and singer. Uh so that wasn't something you had If a I lot- could
1: sing like Edda, I would be a singer. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> I just I, do the best with what I got.
0: <laughs> I no, I understand. Uh when so when did the songwriting kick in though? Um when when did you start? Uh, when did you start writing songs in the middle of all this?
1: I started writing songs. Um, well, honestly, it was because I wanted to, as a side person, I wanted to, you know, be more uh, valuable as a as, a, as an intru- instrumentalist to do more than one thing. So, I, I started working on mandolin and um, singing harmony. And um, then I realized that you can't cover somebody's song because you got to pay money um, on like a record or something. (laughs) So I started trying to make up my own um, and to to just show people that I could be an asset to their band, really. The ambition was to live a life in music and to play the violin. And um, I was like, well, if I can... If singing helps the band out that wants to hire me, I'll do that, but they've got to know that I can do it. so I gotta record something. and if I record something that's not my own song, I gotta pay money. So hit now I'm like, okay, well, I'll write some songs or find some public domain songs in <laughs> um, right Then um, Billy, then I um, one night I jumped on stage like and took the fiddle away from Billy Joe's fiddle player and um, which some people would find uh, not not cool, but he thought it was awesome. In, Wait, Billy um, Joe
0: Shaver. It Billy was Joe Shaver.
1: Yeah. Wait,
0: yeah. So you got to go slower and tell that story because I'm um I think I told Jason this. I'm I'm a uh, kind of obsessed with Billy Joe Shaver's story. Like it's something I've always wanted to make a, a movie or a play or a show. Like I find it the most fascinating story in the world. <laughs> what he did to get Waylon, you know. So I don't He's know. He's incredible. So, well, just what he did to get Waylon, you know. I don't. I don't want to. I'm not going to take. I've I've thought about this for years. Like. 15 like I think it's the most amazing story.
1: I can go, I'll go hard with you on Billy Joe Shaver. Um, this, uh, I was playing at a festival that he was at. And, um, you know, I know about country music. Um, I know all about Billy Joe Shaver. And I'm a fan. I was up there in the front row, the only person, aged like 20 up right. there. And um, the guy that was playing guitars and banjos and had a fiddle up there, blah, blah, blah. I was like... I think in my mind I was thinking I think this would be a good time I t- told myself self that fiddle probably need you to play it What and you know then I was like that I just that it was myself talking to myself yes. my inner inner yes. self saying yeah and I was young I was 20 my frontal lobes not completely developed and right. um and I just went on side stage walked up there like I knew what I was doing and took the fiddle and started playing it and um at that time I was like well, what's the worst that can happen they're just going to take it away from me <laughs> and, and no that's not what happened um billy joe thought it was amazing and um he got down on his knees and was feeling the music and the spirit like you do when you're at a music show doing the live music meditation and then um he asked me to start playing with him and I said okay that sounds great and um, I said I still had to go to school because, you know, I have to have a college degree. You know, music is an unstable life just in case I got to yeah. keep a backup plan. So I would go go out and join him for shows and um, ride in his car. And um, he, um, you know, heard one of those songs that i wrote after we had listened to so many cds and things yes he was like let's listen to your your demos and your fiddles and i was like we really shouldn't do that that's not a great idea you you know uh, we don't need to do that and then he was like oh we're doing it um i saw last night you were trying to sell them next to my cds and i said well it's supplemental income (laughs) and he's like well i gotta kind of gotta know what you're doing putting out there next to mine and um and then he told me, like, the next day we were riding somewhere. Um, my other job was I had to help him keep a, um, an eye on the, um, he had two, two of those speed detectors. Yes. Whatever they're called. Radar guns that, or whatever, yeah. The, uh, the
0: radar, things. yeah.
1: Yeah, he had two two on the left side of the windshield and two on the right. And so I had to help him because um, pay attention to if they were going off for, like, cops or whatever. He liked to drive fast. And um, Sure. Anyway, well, the next gotta, day we were speeding yeah. real fast <laughs> somewhere in the middle of Texas. And he said, you, you know what you need to do? And I said, what do I need to do today, sir? And he said, you need to go move to Nashville and be a songwriter. And I thought I was getting fired. Right. So I was like, oh, no, Billy Joe, not, I'm not leaving the band. No way. I love playing with you. It's so fun. And I feel like I learn so much all the time, and your songs are wonderful. And he was like, you just think on that. And then a year and a half later, I um, packed all my bags and pursued my dream of being a waitress right here in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Yes, of course. I have to go back to it. <laughs> so you, when you say you were playing on that festival, what, you were in Bob Will's band, or you were playing your own thing on that festival with Billy Joe Shaver?
1: Oh, th- sorry. That was when I was with my, um, buddies that I met in college. We were called the Thrift Store Cowboys and we went around and we played, um, songs that they wrote and I played violin. We were, uh, kind of Calexico influenced and Davochka influenced. And
0: who was in that group?
1: Um, myself, Daniel Fluitt, Colt Miller, Clint Miller, and who else? Uh, Jeff Dennis and Chris Killingsworth.
0: So you were doing that. So that's why you were able to be backstage or get to the side of stage. And then you just mm-hmm. felt like you. Now, what did that, what did the other. Uh, I was underage,
1: you know, also kind of a little bit lit, as they say.
0: Sure, I understand. Did the, I figure that, that was in <laughs> okay. part of the frontal lobe thing. What did the, um, how did the, how did the multi instrumentalist guy feel when you came up on, did he look at you like, what are you doing? Or was he okay too once you started doing it?
1: I think he was okay too. I think lucky for me that it was Billy Joe Shaver and he had done things like that in his life before. Well,
0: yes, he sure had. So for the listening audience, Billy Joe Shaver chased Waylon Jennings to, to Nashville and, and it's an amazing story. Go read about it. But Waylon had drunkenly said to him after hearing a song once, I'll record your song and then never did. If you come to Nashville, he came to Nashville and chased Waylon down, and they got a whole bunch of guys who were going to beat the shit out of him, but he was like, I'm not leaving till you listen, and then he played him Hockey Talk Heroes, and then he played him, Waylon said, play another one, and Billy Joe played all these songs, and then Waylon made an album of only Billy Joe Shaver songs, and it's an incredible album, and every song on it is better than the one before it, and Billy Joe Shaver became It's incredible,
1: really that record
0: it's just the best. It's the best. And, and Billy Joe Shaver's versions of those songs are amazing too. And, and, um, Mm
1: -hmm. anyway, it's one
0: of my favorite stories of somebody. It's such a story for this podcast. It's like, you know, it's the kind of thing that could backfire a million times, but he knew he was that good. And he knew that Waylon Drunk one night loved his song. So that's why it is perfect that you did that, Amanda. It's so out of what Billy Joe Shaver would do. I could see why he, um, respected it. Also, you had worked and- prepared for it right so
1: oh no i mean i prepared in the way that um i was a f- fan of country music and i prepared in the way that i had a, a lot of uh experience in improvising and um yes i don't know sometimes you just do things like that
0: but that's I kind of what i mean you prepared um, on your terrible
1: inter- story that's kind of like that please tell it Okay, one, once upon a time, I'm most humiliating thing that I've ever done. Um, I might as well tell everyone. <laughs> um, I was yeah. uh, somewhere in, I don't know, I was opening for Ryan Adams and Jason came out to watch. And um, then he yeah. was called by um, Joe Walsh to come do some stuff with him at the Democratic National Convention. Um, yes. Like some of it was, I think, I can't remember if it was, he has a, th- You'll have to get the name of it. It's um, he does these talks for um, sober folks and stuff like that. And, um, right. and then he also had him play music at the show there. And um, so I played music with Jason, like you know, accompanying him and stuff, saying. And then Joe Walsh, who had been hanging out with all day, said, "You know, and during my set, y'all come up and play with me on Rocky Mountain Way." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "That's a that'll be fun." Never tried that on yeah. violin. And, um yeah. You know, it was very exciting. And um, that thing in my brain that sometimes misinterprets what people are thinking because I'm not a mind reader, really, even though I think I am. Yes. Um, yes. I was on stage, we were doing this song, and I thought that we were on the same wavelength. Like, I thought Joe Walsh was signaling me to solo, but I thought Oh was, no. Oh no. I, I, oh, thought no. He, it, I thought he wanted me to do it on his talk box. You know, the little uh Yeah, of course. Clear, yeah. It's a clear thing attached to the microphone that goes to this box and it works in conjunction with your guitar as you're playing it and it makes it sound like round 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 and all cool. Kind of
0: like the like a vocoder, like the Peter Frampton thing, right? Is it like the exactly. Peter Frampton yeah. thing? Yeah. yeah.
1: And um anyway, so he signals me and I go right up to this thing that's his, that he puts his mouth on and probably doesn't want me on nearby at all for nothing. And, um, I started trying to do it and I don't even have a guitar. (laughs) And, um, and he said, no, play the fucking fiddle. <laughs> no. <laughs> and Wadi walkedle just turned around and laughed at, towards the drummer, and then I turned red, and it of course that was amazing. And then he said, "Try again." And so then I went, and um, I did play a pretty amazing solo. But um, that was oh, that a, is un- phenomenal. Un-downable. That's wonderful.
0: I'm so glad I get to hear that. Oh, that's just <laughs> tremendous. I can't imagine what was going on inside you. So, so when you moved to Nashville, Jason
1: just looked the other way, like he's like not there. He was just like,
0: (laughs) he didn't get, he didn't step up right in the middle of that shit.
1: I think he was focused on his guitar playing.
0: (laughs) Sure, yes, yes, I love that story. So, when you moved to Nashville uh to become a songwriter how how did that go at first how did you go about trying to get into the world of songwriting were you doing the nashville like music row songwriting routine what were you doing
1: i was waiting tables so i could have somewhere to live and then i was saving up my tips and because i didn't know there was a uh, like a songwriting scene um i just saved up my tips and then um made west cross timbers with a guy named david henry and then i right. um, you know started trying to book myself because i tried to get a booking agent and they were like all of them were like let's see what you can do on your own you know and then come back to us and yes it's really a good thing to do because then you get a real idea about what the job of booking is and how difficult it is and um how logistics work <laughs> and um Sure. So I just kept doing that. I would go on tours and then come uh, little tours and come back and wait more tables to supplement my touring. And, um, then, uh, just kept on saving up tips and, um, selling records out of my car. And, uh, yeah. And did you, I you think at that
0: time, were you trying to, were you get? were you getting up at the bluebird too? Did you do open mics there? Did you, or, or was that not your scene?
1: You know, I I got invited to play the Bluebird um because I had a good friend named Susie Ragsdale who's a, who who used to be she still is a wonderful singer and songwriter, but um she was married to Verlin that played with Guy Clark and then um yep. she was with uh Daryl Scott and her dad is Ray Stevens and um she's just a super talented woman and um
0: Daryl, I've known Daryl for since I'm 21 years old, Daryl Scott, uh, that's great. Okay.
1: Yeah, so maybe you met Susie Ragsdale before. I don't know. but um,
0: I might have. I'm not sure, but I've known Daryl forever. That's really funny. Yeah.
1: But she um, had a birthday show, and she wanted me to come play a song at it, and so I did, and then I made friends with Erica there, and um, then they would book me there um, often. And, um, yeah, that was
0: so- – So you did that. You were part of that. You were part of that scene a little bit. And did it switch for you, the the songwriting at a certain point? Because, you know, the way you sort of explain it, Amanda, is like I was writing songs sort of for the utility of it. But at a certain point, just having knowing your music well, at a certain point, it had to become a genuine way of expressing the way you saw the world. Right. Like at a certain point, I imagine it must have become meaningful to you, the songwriting.
1: Oh, it was definitely, from the get-go, it was, when I, you know, was going to do it, I wasn't going to, I don't think I was ever going to do it in a way that, well, I, I did write some shitty songs, but... um.
0: Well, everyone writes shitty songs, but not on <laughs> purpose. You didn't do it on purpose.
1: Yeah, but I was, you know, I think it was just taste-driven, like, what what do I like to listen to, and what mm-hmm. moves me, and so, so... I tried to keep those things in mind, and then when I went to graduate school, the the only purpose in that was to try and get better as a writer, and um, yeah, so I feel like now that I've done, d- did, did all that and, you know, got that other degree that now I'm kind of sometimes non-negotiable with people, so I make a terrible collaborator, because I'm like, we cannot use that word. <laughs> We can't use that phrase, right. we can't use that word well, yeah you have a, yeah.
0: you have a master's in yeah, you have a master's in poetry and everything, and you're a poet, and um take that stuff incredibly
1: uh, I'm not a poet, but seriously. I, I, but I, I do poems um but I'm you know poetics are in songwriting, but that's a that's a yes, that's a rigid, rigid and beautiful thing. I'm no Billy Collins, I'm no I mean I'm no Elizabeth Bishop, but we could all have lofty goals.
0: Sure. No, that all makes sense. I understand why you want to make sure that that's clear, that you don't hold yourself out that way. But I I think you're a poet. Um, Were you content in how the career was going, where you would play with people and then make your own albums? Like before you and Jason, and even as you guys started playing together, was that a a life you you were happy with? Living a life as a working musician? Did you feel like you had greater ambition than that? Or was that you'd achieve the thing that you'd set out to, to do?
1: Um, I, I think because I grew up with music and you know how, how evolutions are um, or can yes. be. I really had, I wouldn't have been able to verbalize my goals at a young age or be yeah. confident enough to address them even with my own self. At, in those times but um it was when billy joe shaver told me that, that i was a good songwriter that i believed it and at first when i thought he was firing me i was like this is the most gentle firing i've ever experienced and also the right. first one hilarious and, yeah. and um but it wasn't that he was he meant it and he's like you've got something you've got you got to do that and um you know i still see him and talk to him but um and he texts in all caps it's funny but um
0: of course he does. Yeah. That's <laughs> when you, when you get over 75, I think that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: but no, it was, know, they, wants when he wants to see the texts. When he was telling me I was a good songwriter, I was like, okay, I'm going to work hard to be good at it, you know? And, um, and
0: did you continue playing as a side person after that before 400 unit, or had you stopped completely and you were only making your own records
1: then? Um, when I left Texas, When I decided to move, I had to make new rules for myself um, where I didn't play with everybody. Uh, um, I only let myself play with people that I thought were, um, that I could learn from or were at the time better than me. Um, You know, so that way I I wasn't just getting money. I was not just, you know, getting paid for a job. I was also having, like, being able to learn. I, I didn't ever tell those people that because... That it wouldn't of come off tactfully if I said it. Yeah, I'll do that. I think you're all right.
0: Yeah, I think I can learn from you. But wait. <laughs> yeah, so when and you, then I'm gonna but, quit but when, when,
1: when you can't teach me anything else. Right.
0: As soon as I got enough. When I got enough from you, I'm done. Goodbye. Yeah. But, but what, when when you um when you say you made a new rule for yourself, I'm I'm always fascinated by this because I do this. I journal every day and I meditate like. How how did you check in with yourself when you say you made a new rule? Was that like very conscious on your part? Like, did you write that down for yourself or just as you were driving to Nashville, you were like, if I'm doing this, a whole bunch of stuff has to change?
1: If I'm doing this, because um, I was leaving Texas and I was an in-demand side player, I would say. Like I, I was making my whole living playing in other people's bands. And, yeah. and when I moved, you know, part of the reason I moved too was because I would call and try to get gigs in Texas and they're like, but you're the fiddle player. And I was like, yeah, I know, right. but I also write songs now. And it was it was a hard sell to people. And um. so I just did what Billy Joe Shaver said to do and I moved. And then when I did, I was like, I don't want to fall into the same thing where I'm a side player. Yeah. And then I'm sitting here thinking, what went wrong here? So when I took jobs waiting tables. I was doing that knowing the reason I was waiting tables is because I didn't want to only be a side person anymore.
0: Yeah, that's super powerful. I hope people hear that. That is super powerful. Like you set a standard for yourself and you were like, my standards are I'm going to do whatever I can to make this thing a reality. And and that means this sort of fun, easy money of being a side person, I'm not going to take advantage of because I have a bigger goal. That's beautiful, Amanda. That's really great.
1: It wasn't um, always easy. Like when I did that movie, Country Strong, with um, that I call yeah. Country Tron, because um, it has that guy yeah. that's in Tron. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow wanted me to teach her daughter violin or fiddle, and that was a hard offer to pass up. But I was like, I'm not a fiddle teacher. I am going right. to be a songwriter, you know. And um, so there was there. That's not to say that there weren't some. Beautiful opportunities that I didn't pass up, but I think that I did them to, to serve the, what would make me feel, you know, more satisfied as a human being walking around in the sure. world, even if sure, it was on a table. T- <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. No, because you wanted to feel a sense that you were like trying to fulfill your potential, right. Or the thing you wanted right. to do. So that, I mean, I get that. That makes total sense. Um, all right, I have to ask you about a few things before before we're we're done here. Um when Southeastern blew up, you became sort of a folk hero, you know? And uh, because the, you know, the whole story of how you kind of saved Jason's life and how he changed himself for you and and whatever the reality of all that was, the songs talked about it, the interviews talked about it, the 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 big moment of cover me up and all the shows, like it was all um, so much about the two of you and about what you meant, and and those moments were so beautiful. You know, I was at all those shows in this area, and and um, I would sometimes watch you during Cover Me Up and wonder, like, what was going through your head as you saw the whole audience taking this spectacle in. And did it ever feel like pressure for you? Did it? How did that? How did you sort of make sense of all of that as it was happening? Did you know when the album was coming out? that that would happen? Like, how does one prepare oneself for that?
1: <laughs> um, I didn't know that would happen. Um, I didn't, I di- I remember when we were, he was writing that record and I was writing, um, Down Fell the Doves. Um, that's my yes. record. Uh, we were, Yes, we would spend, uh, too much time watching Netflix or, you know, <laughs> going to the mall or whatever. Um, but or you know doing everything but writing songs so we would every other day we'd go and write a song and when we were done then we'd let ourselves hang out with each other again nice but um I, you know when he played me that song i did cry and um there wasn't a single edit i thought that it needed um because we we, right. we started that early on too like he's the reason i went to Suwanee. we were driving back from something. And he was like, that's the writing school that you've been telling me you've wanted to go to because I told him I wanted to oh, go to writing awesome. school, but I wasn't yeah. sure where. He was like, that's the one you want to go to. Go to that one.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. But,
1: um, but anyway, so about Southeastern, I didn't know that was going to happen. I don't think a lot of people knew that was going to happen um, just because, you know, he had been making records that were louder and more rock and roll. And that one was very...
0: Yes. Yes, but I'm not even, I don't want to get, make this about Jason. I'm, it's more about you. Um, oh. uh, I, I'm just curious about what your, basically, suddenly there's this album that's about you. And, and not only is it about you, and you privately know that, but the story of who you were, uh, this, this person who saved this other person, was so out there in the world. And like uh, I would think that the pressure to then be a perfect person would be so great. Oh, or, but I
1: never bought so, into that idea. Like if that's a lie, he had to tell himself that I saved him. I did not save him. He saved himself. He told me he right. needed help one too many times. And, you know, at this point I was done with his ass and I was like, you, you need yes. help already. And, um, then while he was in rehab, um, he sent me letters cause they couldn't talk on the phone, but like, you know, once a day for like five minutes. And, um, He's he kept saying wait wait and see the progress and there's something so endearing and also vulnerable about about that and a lot of the the letters that I was like well all right I'm gonna wait and yes. see the progress and so I did but as far as as pressure and living up to that and whatnot I, you can never live up to what anybody thinks something is or whatever but yeah. I I don't ever feel pressure because I feel like most people, most good human beings would help somebody that they know when they need help. Right. And yes. as far as like saving somebody's, I mean, you know, I wasn't there giving them mouth to mouth or nothing.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. but, right. But
0: yeah. Right, but when the whole thing blew up the way that it did and you guys became so famous. Um,
1: are we famous?
0: Come on, that's no. Not, I'm serious. Yes, you're
1: <laughs> How do you know? Well, you're yeah,
0: you. Well, you guys know because right when you. Uh, even Jason said the last time he and I talked, I think on the podcast. Um. You know, he said. Uh, he said one of the things that made him so happy about the high women is that sometimes now people are asking for your autograph instead of his, and and for years he didn't like when people would ask for his, and and you'd be standing there, and and,
1: you know, oh. when
0: he, when when he became so famous. Or or successful, did did that add any pressure for you in terms of your thing? Because then, you know, oh, I can imagine you're there. You
1: know, you're, yeah. yeah, I mean, for him, he's very competitive. And um, even with me, he, he, he is. But I'm not that way. I'm not as competitive as he is. And I also realized a lot earlier on than knowing him that it was a lot different for, for women in the business. And ah, um, yes. so I never had that part of it like – that line that he wrote about mama wants to change that Nashville sound, but they're never going to let her. It is, is like to me saying the thing that you, that you just now described him saying Um, it would, I think for me, it was, he was saying that I see you.
0: Right. Yes. Right. That makes complete sense to me. That tracks. And uh, so talk about as before we, we, we end here, just talk about, the, I understand the high women, you know, you're looking at your daughter in a way and you're thinking about this world and you're deciding you want to do this, but I mean, to have the idea to form like a super group and then to actually make it go to number one, is just unbelievable. So how, what did you do when you had the idea? Like you had the idea, did you know which women you wanted to include in it? And and how did you go about putting the band together?
1: Um, well, I had the idea and then I was very careful with the idea. I just sat with it and thought about it for a long time, uh, probably a good you know ten or twelve months just with myself and the wow. idea. Um, and um, the first person I told was Dave Cobb, and it was Jason yes, and I the producer. were at, yeah we're at his studio doing I don't know what we were doing some kind of recording because why else would we be there? Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, I told him you know he had a daughter or has a daughter um, older than Mercy now, but, um, like 10, she might be 10, but, um, he was like, that is an amazing idea. And for me, you have to be super careful who you're going to share your ideas and your dreams with. Yes.
0: Oh my God. Yes. Yes. You
1: tell the wrong person, they're going to squash it. Ah, yes. And I told him and I hadn't even told Jason because, you know, sometimes Jason's protective for me. So I wasn't sharing this idea with him because I didn't want him to tell me the reality of how difficult it would be when I already knew that. And um, so I told Dave and Jason was there and Dave was like, I love this idea. And he said, you know, I know a one person that might be good for it. Brandy Carlisle, I'll give you her number. And he gave me her number and I didn't call it. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) And I didn't call it because I'm just... What am I going to just call right. Brandy and say, hey. Had you I'm met Brandy? Gonna... Wait, had you no. met, had you met no. Brandy
0: before? You're, you never. never met her. Okay. Okay. No. So he gives you the number and you don't no. call.
1: No. Uh-uh. What am I going to say? Hi. This is somebody you don't Brandy. know. <laughs> um, anyway. So what happened? So Dave called me to do another thing at the studio, like probably eight or nine months later after that. And he was like, did you ever call Brandy about the idea that, wow. you know, we need to do? And um, I was like, well, are you producing it or not? And he was like, well, yeah, I said that a long time ago. And he said, you still haven't called her. And I was like, Dave, what am I going to just call her and try to verbalize an idea to her? I mean, I don't know if, you you know, I kind of have to meet the person if I'm going to know if I'm going to tell this person this idea to because I don't want the idea to get squished. And um, he said, okay, well, I have this thing tonight at Basement East and you're going to go. And she's going to be there. And he's like, you're going to go meet her and you're going to tell her about it. And I said, I'll go, but that's as much as I'm promising you right now. I'm going to go. And so I went. Yeah. And it was the poorest timing of all timings, except for the Joe Walsh thing. This is second only to that.
0: Why? Why is it so bad?
1: Because we go backstage and he introduces me and she just finished her vocal warm-ups and it was like 30 seconds before she goes on stage. Mm -hmm. Her. You know, her pregnant wife was there, and they were like in this passionate embrace as she was about to go on stage. Uh, and um, Dave said, "This is Amanda." And I said, "Hi, Brandy Carlisle, I'm Amanda Shires. I want to start this band called The High Women. Will you be in it with me?" <laughs> and she oh looked God. at me And she said, "Well, um, this is interesting. Maybe we can talk about it after the show." And I said, okay. And then I went home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It must've felt awful. So you drive home feeling very small. And then what
1: happens? (laughs) Well, it was my own fault. Like I should have gauged the situation. This is why I don't go out much. Um,
0: (laughs) Right. Hilarious.
1: um, It's that, you know, I don't know, but it was the right thing to do at the time. She um, got my number from Dave Cobb and she called me the next day in, um, we talked about it for a long time and um and turns out she um knew exactly what I was wanting to do and believed in it. Then we started calling everybody we know. Because for me the High Women was never about just four women or four white women. Right. Um but we needed we needed to we needed a path, we needed a starting point and Dave introduced us to um, Natalie Hemby, um, Brandy called Marin. But in all that in between time, we had talked to, I don't know, between us 60 different people that wanted to be involved or participate in any way. But it was like touring conflicts or recording conflicts, or I'd love to come, you know, be a part of this because, like, we had plans that got kind of, kind of like everybody else's did, spoiled from the pandemic. Yes. Like, with I had all like, you know, I was gonna, we were gonna have guests. Like, how cool would it be to see Bonnie Rape play the slide? Because Yeah, that took so bad. Yeah, and then right.
0: yeah, so badass.
1: Have Jenny Lewis come up and join us and Nico Case Sh- and yeah, maybe I mean, she's they- my,
0: Jenny. Yeah, of course. I mean, Jenny Lewis, my favorite. She's the best. Oh my god. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That'd be
0: so it, cool.
1: Tanya, Tanya Trotter from the Warren Treaty was on board for a while and then she had family conflicts and, you know, um, well, all kinds of people were on board and, but, um, not everybody can make it, but y'all, they were going to make it Roseanne in the live scene, which we didn't get to fill out our, be um, awesome. hopes Cash. yet, but we'll still get to. Yeah. Oh yeah. Roseanne Cash, all those, all those ones. And then I was like, well, one day when we do like Something we're gonna get Beyonce to sing the Starman vo- verse of Jimmy Webb.
0: Did 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 you know the the what the songs were gonna be like? Like, did you have a vision yes. of? Mm-hmm. And did you talk about that too with Brandy that first day?
1: I talked about that with Brandy day one, and to every other every other person that came into the studio from day one, I was like, "There's no sassy songs on this record, right? Like, not like in the way of like." Like, I like sassy songs, but for I wanted everything to go back to what I call the, the if you can imagine a tree, um, the, the, the foundation being the High Women and the High Women song that we rewrote, um, that yes. was our going back to point. Everything had to reflect back to that somehow. You know, we'll talk about um, domesticity and, you know, things that are that we don't really get to hear are not really allowed to well not really things that people women are touted for singing about you know we can sing gospel songs we could sing love songs unrequited love songs that's your lane um but but there's we have more to talk about and more to say and um y- you know most of us have kids now in that band I guess all of us but um we we start from a young age taking our lessons from our mothers and and I just somehow just wanted it to to be more than you know I didn't want it to be like sex appeal and stuff I mean that's all sexuality for us is a big deal women and men but I wanted it to stay true to the fact that that um yes. you know we want to talk about some 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 stuff we want you to see things from a different side you know
0: Uh, well i gotta say amanda that's a beautiful place to end and it's great bookend with the problem the new song that's out now because you're obviously on this incredible path um in terms of being able to communicate what you're thinking about and what's important and i saw the impact of the high women album on my own family and i mean all of us listened to it so much and i saw what it meant to anna and um uh, you know, as a 20 year old or 19 year old, maybe mm-hmm. when it came out, I saw what that album meant to her and a different way than, you know, Pistol Annie's might have meant when she was 15 or 13 with this, which those sassy songs had a real place in the world. You know what I mean? Right, but this right. album that they did, but this album meant something else to her. I watched it. I watched the way it hit her and we would listen, you know, how we all listened to it. And um, for
1: me, I wanted it to apply in like many ways industries you know there's so many women in in um yes i'm not whining at all in male-dominated industries that that have a lot to offer and a lot to say and i just i just wanted other you know women to know that there's a bunch of other ones like us out there whether you're in journalism or or um maths or (laughs) or singing and songwriting i don't know
0: I like the British maths. No, that's awesome. And, and, um, you can imagine how the, the Koppelman family were cheering for you too, man. We were all so happy that, uh, you know, this kind of success came to you and, uh, you know, so, uh, so well-deserved. Anytime, and, uh, anytime so, I
1: like get to do something that makes any of my friends, uh, happy, it makes me super, yeah. that's the highest compliment. So uh, thank you.
0: No, it's true. We were all so happy. Um, people go out there and support um amanda's music and when there's live music again go see amanda with 400 unit and and the highwaymen hopefully you'll tour and um we can all be a part of uh seeing all that stuff um all right amanda i've taken you away from everybody long enough thanks for doing this
1: thanks for having me
0: of course you can find me at brian koppman on twitter you can find amanda on twitter she sometimes changes her name around but you can find her if you look hard enough and uh Uh, We'll see you uh, next time, everybody.